Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Think about the smells, the smells in the forest, the pine or the dirt or after a rain, you know, the mud. There's so many dimensions to real life and you don't want your kids growing up in a deprived state. And online is deprived of a bunch of senses that smell and taste and touch are, are missing. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. Uh, today, my guest is Lenore Skenazy. Welcome. Hey, thanks. I've been really excited to talk to you because in the journey of uh, becoming a father, I came across your work through Jonathan Haidt's book, Coddling of the American Mind, which I'm sure is a reason a lot of people are welcomed into your world. And I was just struck by your story and it really spoke to me as a child who grew up in the I was born in the late 70s, so grew up in the 80s and 90s. And then I compare it to the world that we're currently in. I just really valued being sent out on adventures. And, <laughs> you know, your parents kind of were like, okay, see you at five or whatever it was. And they hoped you returned. And uh, that just <laughs> feels very different. So I'm really excited to chat with you. Thank you for taking the time. All right. So I already have to jump in. They hoped you'd return. I think what's really different about that era and this era is that it seems to involve hope now. And it was a given um, when our parents were raising us, certainly when mine was raising me, walking to school at age five when it was the norm. And I feel bad because somehow we got so focused on the worst case scenarios, the the most dreadful things we could dream of. And we're sort of haunted by this, this nightmare. And it feels almost sacrilegious to say, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world and sometimes something terrible will happen that can't impact your everyday life because it sounds like, nah, who cares? Sometimes some kids are going to die. And that's not how I feel. I can't imagine anybody feels that way. But to, to be able to recognize that there's no such thing as perfect safety and go about your life being pretty darn safe, especially compared to other eras, other countries, is something to be grateful for. And yet we think it's wrong. And it doesn't even feel instinctive anymore. It feels instinctive to always be terrified that your child is in danger. And that's that's the huge change between when our parents were raising us and now. Not that they were naive and were so wise 
or that they didn't care and we do, but that they had some sense of not being in total in control, totally in control, and therefore accepting the fact that this world is not perfect and us not being able to accept that. Yeah, what you said there, that we seem to be so obsessed with the possibility of something going wrong, that it it almost like consumes people. I would imagine it does. And, you know, your story, maybe we could start with just where that began, because I think it's such a fascinating, it shows you this sort of level of judgment, you know, all the things that come uh, with it. I'm not a parent yet, but I'm sure I'll be welcomed <laughs> Soon enough. into. Soon right. Yeah. No, I, be, I, bet, sure. uh, I bet your wife slash partner slash fiance has already been chastised at some point for taking a sip of wine or eating a piece of soft cheese or craving a tuna fish sandwich, all these things that are taboo. God forbid she ate a piece of salami in the last nine months. You know, what if she doesn't care? You know, you killed her baby. And so it starts pretty early. And um, for me, the revelation of just how judgmental America can be is when years ago, uh, and when I say years, I mean 15 years ago, our yeah. nine-year-old, then nine-year-old son, it will flash, not in the blink of an eye, um, but our then our nine-year-old son wanted us to take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home on the subway. Because uh, we live in New York City, that's how we get around. To him, that was like the equivalent of a bike, <laughs> I think, right. to a suburban kid. Uh, it's a subway ride here. And we said, okay, we being me and my husband said, okay. Uh, husband sat on the ground with him here and looked at a map and made sure he knew how to get where he was going, which he did because he loves maps and loves subways. And um, one sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's fancy schmancy department store where he hadn't been, I think, as you can tell. And um, <laughs> uh, and I left him there. And sure enough, he had to go into the subway, which is right underneath the store, and wind his way home, take a subway and then a bus across town. And when he came into our apartment, he was slightly different, a little bit prouder of himself, a slightly different relationship with us because he knew that we trusted him. And that's a great feeling. That's sort of the wind underneath your wings is knowing that somebody believes in you. And um, and I'm a newspaper writer by trade, um, or I was when there were newspapers. And so um, I wrote a column, Why I Let My Nine-Year-Old Ride the Subway Alone. And two days later, I was on the Today Show, MSNBC, Fox News, and NPR. I love the fact that I was on Fox News and NPR. Um, <laughs> defending myself. And I got the nickname America's Worst Mom. And what was interesting is if it was just terrible, if it was just me having done something awful, um, you know, murdered my children, I, I don't think there would have been that much discussion other than hate. But the fact that most of us could still remember what um, seemed to be a free range childhood when, when your parents trusted you, like you were saying, to go outside and play versus what we were doing now it was sort of, I think the reason it caught the public's imagination is, first of all, anything in New York is sort of automatically 10% more interesting. But also there was this discrepancy between how, even when they were like putting on the makeup and fluffing my hair, which I wish somebody would do here, um, for the Today Show, you know, they're, they're teasing your hair and they're going, oh, sure, I remember the subway. Oh, how I loved getting around. Oh, I would go to such and such a place or I would go to a club or whatever. Everybody was remembering the joy of their independence and saying, but of course, I would never do that now. And I'm a reporter, you know, so I look up my statistics. <laughs> I look up my FBI facts. I look up my New York City crime statistics. And of course, anybody who was growing up in the 70s, 80s, or 90s was growing up in a much more um, violent and dangerous city uh, than I was letting my kid out in. And even with the rise in crime today, um, I was just looking up the statistics today. It's still lower than it was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it just feels so much more dangerous. And we can talk about why. Uh, it's not just 
the news cycle, although that's part of it. So that's that's why it was interesting because people were going like, wait a minute, I used to do that. I love that. Wait, I would never let my kid do that. Why not? So in a moment when you're feeling like your son is empowered, that you as a parent are experiencing like a transitional moment with your son with this level of trust, this level of almost like a safe independence and autonomy, that would be a natural evolution in a, I guess we would say, taste of a former world. Yeah, in that, you also experience judgment, not just from Sally who read your column, but like America. And yeah. you get this title yeah, of no, America's Worst yeah, Mom. Yeah, Worst Mom. Yeah, I got to wear it. I did. And so that weekend, I started my blog and I called it Free Range Kids. And frankly, I trademarked it. Such a good title. A trademark lawyer. Yeah, yeah. It's it such really a cool. good title. Yeah. And so, you know, I chug away and I write my column and I'm really always trying to puzzle out how did we get so scared for our kids? How did we get to the point where we see almost everything they do, see, read, watch, touch, uh, lick as potentially fatal to them? Or if it's not fatal, it's going to make them fall behind and then they'll never grapple their way up the economic ladder or they'll never be happy or they'll be fat. I mean, it's like all the, all the horrible fates that can befall a kid. And, um, and so then I wrote the book, Free Range Kids. And it really... I chart where things are in the culture. And it's, it has become sort of a movement, but it was about five years ago that John Haidt, who you mentioned, um, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, and before that he wrote The Righteous Mind, was talking to Dan Shuckman, who isn't a famous name, but he was the chairman of FIRE for 10 years. And FIRE is an organization that fights for free speech on campus. Very concerned about kids keeping open minds, listening to ideas, grappling, arguing, as opposed to feeling threatened or frightened or unsafe when faced with an opinion or a speaker that they, or a book um, that they don't like or approve of or agree with. And they were saying, you know, it's really strange. They're, they're feeling uncomfortable, but they think they're unsafe. I mean, they literally use the word unsafe and safe spaces as the alternative. Uh, this, this can't just be happening the second they step on, you know, the quad at, on the, you know, the leafy quad with people playing Frisbee and dogs and bandanas. It must be happening sooner. And, and what they were trying to do to change the culture on campus is a late stage intervention. And is there anybody who is trying to change the culture? Uh, when the kids are younger, and then they found me. So they were saying this This is something must be happening earlier in these uh, young people's lives to make them feel fragile. Why are they not growing up resilient? You know, somebody's coming on campus. I don't like what she stands for. I'm going to go and I'm going to raise my hand and bring up the point that I read the other day that proves that she's wrong, or I'm not going to go because I can't stand her, or I'm even going to protest, you know, this woman is wrong. But the idea of canceling speakers or demanding trigger warnings when you're going to be reading something that's traumatic. You know, trigger warnings actually turn out to be psychologically a terrible idea. A trigger warning, like you're about to read something that might trigger you. So watch out. Actually, that makes you more wary and feel more like you're um, so vulnerable that you might fall apart. And, you know, there's a lot of therapy that deals with exposure therapy, which is the idea that, oh, you're afraid of snakes. I'm going to show you a picture of a snake and then you're going to get closer to the snake and then you're going to go to the zoo and watch the, you know, go into the snake house. So not only were the, um, the young people feeling like they couldn't handle something new or disturbing, but the adults on campus felt that they had to treat the children as if they were going to fall apart anytime they were upset. And that's the opposite of empowering, as opposed to saying, I believe in you. I think you can do it. This might be a little hard. This might be a little scary, but go you. It was like, oh, you poor thing. 
something is weird about that culture that thinks it's being compassionate by treating people as very vulnerable and fragile all the time, even in the face of something that isn't literally dangerous. I mean, I would, I would protect people from falling chainsaws, uh, but not from a speaker who they're going to disagree with. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that was a fascinating correlation that Jonathan Haidt did and the other co-authors, Greg Lukainov. And I found that just very interesting to think like, where, how did we get to this? Because, you know, I'm on social media. I have a fairly significant social media following. And I felt the same trepidation about using the wrong word, but actually not even using the wrong word, using a word that itself is correlated to a lot of emotionality and that just having someone on a bad day who decides that they're going to try to take me down because they were offended. But you know, like the world itself, if you want to look to be offended is going to offend you. I mean, that's just the name. That's always been the nature of (laughs) go world. And I think it's Van Jones who says like, that's the whole point. (laughs) of being in a campus. Like he said, it's like going to the gym. If we take away the challenge of language, we take away the weights in the gym. And isn't that where we're supposed to learn? Luckily, I don't have to raise anything above my head. (laughs) Right. Right. This feels great. (laughs) It doesn't stretch us intellectually. It doesn't stretch our capacity for disagreement. And campuses are actually supposed to be the place that it's modeled, but they're now the place that is doing the same sort of safetyism parenting. I just, that was such an interesting correlation. And it makes sense though, because what you're saying about, like people try to cancel you by saying you're America's worst mom, but I love that you doubled down and then created a blog called the Free Range Kids, trademarked it and said, actually, no. And that's actually what we need is leaders like you who who are saying, no, there's a line in the sand here. This is actually important. You know, I acknowledge you for that because in the face of scrutiny, you grew and expanded and and really it probably looks uh, After a few, fire. a few minor breakdowns, uh, yes. And, and also it's interesting, it was so long ago, it was 15 years ago, it was sort of before cancellation. And also I didn't have anything to be canceled. I mean, like I wasn't a professor, I was just a writer at a newspaper. So I don't know how you'd cancel me per se. But the reason they came to me was... A, because of the, the whole campus thing. But it's like, what is it? I mean, we don't want to, this is a land of the free and the home of the brave. We don't want to be raising young people even before they get to college who are, I mean, it's not that third graders are feeling offended and, and requiring trigger warnings. It's that they were becoming passive and fearful. And I, so when I said that I would join with John and um, Dan and start a nonprofit, which we call Let Grow, Everybody knows the name Free Range Kids. They don't know the name Let Grow yet. So L-E-T, new word, grow. I said we had to bring in one other person to be a founder um, with us. First of all, I said no, because I had no idea how to run an organization. But then they said, find somebody to run the organization. Ah, it's a good idea. So um, found somebody to run it. And then um, I said, but we also have to bring in Professor Peter Gray, who I would highly recommend uh, for for your show and your life. He's, um, He's the person... Now, when I listen to John talk about childhood, he sounds like Peter Gray and I sound like Peter Gray. So basically, we're all just like carbon copies. If if anybody remembers what a carbon copy is, <laughs> it's what you made back in the days when you could walk to school. Um, we all sound like Peter Gray. So it's G-R-A-Y. And he's a professor at Boston College. And he wrote a book called Free to Learn. Not free to be you and me. It's free to learn. And his um, professional life after he was a neuro something or other at Rockefeller University has to be looking at what kids get out of free play. 
And by free play, I'm just going to pause here and ask you, what did you do in your free time when you were playing as a kid? Oh, man. Uh, a lot of bike rides, a lot of street hockey, a lot of soccer. Street, oh, Canada. Yeah, yeah I'm Canadian. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of just like, I would say all of my years before high school, I remember going to a friend's in the neighborhood's houses on my bike, and then we'd all get together after school, and then I just had to be home for dinner, and that was it. You know, a lot of adventure, like going into the forest near the house. We had an area called Grasshopper Hill, and we'd build forts and do stuff like that, you know? What'd you make your forts out of? Out of all the wood from the area, we'd bring stuff from home, planks. That my dad would be like, we're missing some of the wood I bought. <laughs> Don't worry, it's I'm in the forest. I'm falling through the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we... We would just build and have fun, build bike jumps and, you know, all the things. All right. I have to pause again. What did you get from this stupid waste of time when you weren't doing um, homework and you weren't on a team and you weren't going to the Olympics and nobody was looking at you and deciding how good you were? Yeah. You know, the main feeling I have thinking about those experiences is joy, is joy and adventure and probably a level, like if I'm looking at it more psychologically probably a level of self-trust and um, autonomy and that I got to choose my adventures. You know, like my parents weren't pointing like, go build a fort. That would, then I wouldn't want to build it. Nobody would build a fort if their parents said, let's build right. a fort here. I bought you some <laughs> so, plastic and here's the plants and let me hold the hammer because I don't want you to hurt yourself. You got a sensitive thumb. Um, what did you get in terms of dealing with other people? I mean, you weren't building the fort yourself. Yeah, collaboration, uh, communication, how to handle conflict on our own. Because, of course, you know, like any friends, you, you don't agree on everything or you, one person's hogging the thing and you want it. Um, I didn't have video games growing up. Uh, we weren't allowed them. And so my friends, a couple of the friends in the neighborhood had those. But you also learned how to share. You learned how to take turns. Yeah, You know, all the things. So let's superimpose that on what our worries are about young people today. You learned to collaborate. You learned to argue and yet get along, make something happen, understand another person, not be a jerk yourself because nobody wants to play with the guy who's hogging all the, all the nails or whatever. And you learned how to be creative and how to deal with the materials that were there. Um, did anything ever go wrong? I mean, yeah, we had someone uh, come in and destroy our fort. That's for sure. I remember that. Oh Some kids, from, we never figured out who. Um, we used to build snowmen too. I remember someone would come along and destroy those. We lost my friend's dad's uh, saw. I remember that. How do you lose a saw? We just left it there and someone, oh. because we thought we Not hid lost. it in the bushes. <laughs> yeah, oh. lost, right. stolen. But right. again, he's like, where's my saw? Like, uh, I don't know. Oh, you know, times are tough. Yeah. Okay. So these are the skills that mother nature sort of expected you to get. And, and there's a drive to play. There's a drive to play that's as strong as the drive to reproduce <laughs> later on. And, and it has the same end, not to create another child, but to um, make sure that the species continues. Mother Nature put both of those drives in because they are crucial. And, you know, can't get rid of one, but we are still, <laughs> we are really trying to stomp on the drive to play by changing it into an adult run activity, right? So now... All the playing or most of the playing after school is in some organized activity, which is sort of like more school. It's just with a bat or a, you know, or a puck or something like that. But it is still somebody telling you what to do and deciding, you know, if you're doing it right or wrong and when does the game end and begin and who's on which team. And 
All that stuff is what mother nature intended for you as the kids to figure out because in pursuit of play, in pursuit of finally getting this fort built or finally having this hockey game, you had to argue that these teams aren't fair or how come you're always on the good side and we're always downstream or whatever. And so in doing that, in getting to the fun, you were building these muscles of compromise. And, and even when you have different ages, you were learning a little empathy because you weren't going to throw the ball really hard at the six-year-old when you're 12 because you'd be a jerk, right? And the six-year-old's not going to cry in front of these cool seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds even because he's in the presence of, you know, the gods on Mount Olympus and he doesn't want to look like a baby. So he learns to hold it together. The older kids learn empathy. Everybody's learning how to get along enough to make something happen and to be a decent enough person so that you're not left out. And without these skills, like if, if, I mean, this is true of any parent, but if you're with your kids and they're arguing, you say, shut up. (laughs) Or maybe you say, oh, let's use our indoor voices. But in any event, you step in and you say, okay, it's going to be your turn first, but then you get two turns because Jimmy's going first or whatever. And so we skip over all that messy stuff that seems like a waste of time because we're trying to get to the play, the fun. And actually all the stuff that looks like wasted time is all the bodybuilding, all the spirit building, all the the humanity building that you need. And if you're worried that kids seem easily hurt and, you know, feeling like when somebody's uh, disagreeing with them, it's the end of the world. It's a dangerous situation. It shouldn't happen. It's because it hasn't been happening. And somebody has been saying, hey, hold on. And I don't even blame parents. I blame a culture that has gradually made it abnormal to have your child unsupervised for any amount of time, um, whether it's after school or on the weekends or in the summer, because me too, <laughs> you know, when I'm with my kids, you know, I see them doing something dumb and they're in their twenties. They still do dumb stuff. Don't let them watch this video. Um, you know, I'm like, put down your phone, you're crossing the street. But, but of course they're, they're not paying attention because they're with me. They're with the adult who's taken charge. And when I'm not with them is when they do become the adults. We always, at Let Grow, we say when adults step back, kids step up. But when you're with them, you you inevitably want to make things go faster. You know how to do it better. You know, don't do it that way. That's stupid. Try this. And we optimize. We think we're optimizing their time because the actual optimization, it looks annoying. You know, you're arguing, you know, one kid is left out, you know, he's scouring, he's scowling and, and, you know, he has to figure out how to get himself back in the game. All this stuff is painful to see. So that's why we can't see it. (laughs) If we see it, we will feel the pain. Uh, We have a better idea. We've got a solution. We're an adult. You got to listen to us and we will solve the problem. And then we wonder why we don't have problem solvers. (laughs) So, so as far as I can see, the only solution to a culture that seems to be draining kids of their initiative and their joy, right? And their ability to get along and their eagerness to make something happen. You might call it the entrepreneurial spirit is to get away from them. Let them have some time. It's like, you know, you raise your, you know, you raise an animal in the zoo, you know, a a hawk, (laughs) you know, they're not going to be soaring later on. You have to let them soar because your zoo is not helping them. Yeah, it makes me, I, I have a nephew who's just over a year. And the other day I was watching him play with his six-year-old and nine-year-old cousin. And when I was playing with him prior to that, he's like engaged and like having fun. But 
I watched him with his cousins, and it's like a whole different world. Like what you were saying about the negotiations and the resiliency, and like he's only one, so he's not really learning much emotional regulation. He's learning how to express. But it was so fascinating how much more engaged he was. And I came along like, hey, you know, like kind of poking at him just to play. He was not interested at all. He wanted his younger cousins and there was another three-year-old present and he was just like following that three-year-old around. Yeah, it was just really cool to witness how much more important those relationships were for him with unstructured play. And they were just so present with him and and caring. And and I thought, wow, that is he's getting so much from that. And I would even venture to say so much more from that than from playing with me that I was just like, wow, okay, there's, because in learning about free play, you realize how important, unstructured, and what you were saying about teams and like a 12-year-old with a six-year-old. And and I think about being on the schoolyard when you're picking like a basketball team or whatever it is, and everyone's, take, you pick captains and then you take turn. And, and, you know, there's the feeling like you don't want someone to get picked last or you want to make sure the teams are even. I didn't really think until you mentioned it, how important all that is in terms of negotiation, in terms of collaboration, and in terms of seeking to take care of people and equity and 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 fun and and it's just it's so important. That's why the different grades together are so important. Yeah, it's it's really making me think a lot. Like I I sent your um, book and podcast that you did with um I forget what the podcast was called, but it was with some therapists. You sure it wasn't just my therapy session that you got a hold of? Okay. <laughs> I didn't tap into that yet, but I'll, I'll put a word in. But yeah, I sent it to some friends whose um, son is in his early teens, and they have different beliefs in terms of safetyism. And I was really curious to get their feedback on it because the idea of letting someone even not have a phone, like technology, I'm curious, because that was 15 years ago that that originally happened for you. And you've done so much work in this space, had so many conversations. I mean, you've spoken around the world. You're, you know, you're really a a foremost expert in this space. How have you seen the impact of technology on this and also parenting? (laughs) Yeah. Giving away my ethnic background. Oi, gavalt, the phone. (laughs) Um, I'll talk about technology in a second, but I just wanted to say one thing. So um, when you saw the one-year-old, three-year-old, six-year-old, and eight-year-old, that's like the world, every generation (laughs) since humanity began until about 40 years ago, when we just started saying, you know, after school, kids have to be in these activities. And they were so age segregated. And, you know, we're so against all other segregation. We recognize, you know, boys and girls are both interested in the same things and black and white, for God's sake, don't segregate them. But age, oh, we don't want to have a nine-year-old with a six-year-old. The nine-year-old will bully the six-year-old. The six-year-old will keep the nine-year-old back. There was a a famous case in New York where a mom was suing a preschool because somehow the the age mix was there was her four-year-old daughter and then she was with a lot of two-year-olds. And the mother said, how is my child ever going to get into Harvard? This was, you know, billed as an academically rigorous school. And now my kid is with these two-year-olds and I want my money back. And I felt like you should be paying them extra. You got a four-year-old who thinks she's God. You know, she's got all these little minions who look up to her, love everything she says, do everything she suggests because she's the four-year-old. And if you want your kid to learn leadership, that was the year to do it. And instead the mom was thinking so literally as if they were all given readers and the child was given a a two-year-old. I mean, like they shouldn't be bothering with anything academic at that age anyhow. So 
it's just strange that we think that we've gotten so used to segregating by age that the idea of mixing them again requires an explanation, sort of like the one you, you know, you stumbled upon the other day with, with the nieces and nephews, which is like, wait a minute, there's something very enriching about all of this. I mean, not to mention all the personalities and the boys and girls and, you know, you come from different backgrounds and like, oh, you eat your hamburger like this. I mean, we are so um, standardizing and sort of smoothieing, you know, childhood into something with no lumps and everything's uniform and they're in uniforms even. That's how uniform it is. Feels and so thinking sterile. that that's, it is sterile. It's like, you know, would you rather be in your perfect soccer uniform waiting for the coach to tell you when to start? Or would you be rather be with a bunch of kids in the woods playing I didn't go seek or cops and robbers and climbing the trees and being scared by the person behind you. I wouldn't like either of those, but that's me. But I think that most <laughs> people, you know, I'd like to be drawing with chalk or reading with a book. It's so obvious. There's like, there's more smells and tastes and textures and experiences when you're not on AstroTurf and we're sort of AstroTurfing childhood to keep them from getting hurt or being bullied or hearing a word that they shouldn't hear. And pretty soon, you know, would you prefer being in a forest or on AstroTurf? And everybody prefers the forest and we're giving them AstroTurf. So in terms of tech, because I live in the real world, darn, 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 um, I don't know how to get rid of technology in kids' lives. And I'm not completely anti-tech. I think that uh, because I say everything that Peter Gray says, Peter Gray feels that especially video games are not really that bad. They're games and you play them often with other kids and you're strategizing and there's teamwork and, you know, there's, there's some elements of normal free play that kids aren't getting when they go outside and they're in, uh, you know, just travel soccer all the time. So in a way he thinks of it as an escape, like a, an escape hatch, like in, like to Narnia, you can go to the, to the video game room and, or video game in your life and find other people and play. That being said, there's a there's a lot that I don't like about tech. And part of it is that, I mean, everybody says, oh, we have to let kids get bored again because then they'll do things, which is true, but it's sort of so boring. I don't even feel like I have to say that. But I do feel like if you don't have some time without tech, and this is true for me too, who's like glancing over it, you know what? You don't have a chance to make things happen and be in the world <laughs> And that's, and I feel like one of the reasons kids are on technology so much is in part because we made the world taboo. No, you can't walk to the bus stop. No, you can't walk home. No, you can't go to the mall. No, you can't go to the park. And so, okay, I'll go to the world that's available to me, you know, by pressing my, by touching my screen. And so let grow. So when we started let grow me with these geniuses, Peter Gray and John Haidt and Dan, I do a lot of these podcasts and talks and people nod along and they all remember very fondly their childhood and the sticks and the Nerf guns and whatever. And then they don't let their kids do any of that. And yeah, the Nerf, Nerf finally, you know, we, we needed to go to a friend's house where they, where he had a Nerf gun. And I was like, oh my God, I, I grew up with a sister, you know, Nerf guns were not part of my life. But um, then they, <laughs> after that wonderful visit to a friend's house, they became part of my kids' lives for the better, I would say. And they both still have two eyes and all their teeth. The technology, so so when we started Let Grow, the whole the whole idea was I don't want people nodding along and not and nothing changing. You know, being a thought leader, leading somebody's thoughts, then they forget it. I mean, you need to change actual behavior. And behavior is not going to change unless it's 
sort of pushed. <laughs> and I said, so if we're doing let grow, instead of changing minds, we have to change behavior. And one of the things, uh, we have two school programs that I so highly recommend, and they're both free and easy. And one of them speaks exactly to technology, which is that we suggest that schools stay open before or after school and after school for like two, three hours, as long as they can for mixed age, no devices, free play. There's an adult there for legal reasons. They're crouching in the corner. They're smoking a cigarette. Doesn't matter. They're there, just there. Okay. There's a human presence. They're older, over the, over 30, let's say. And then there's just a bunch of junk. And it's sort of like what you were talking about bringing out to the to the fort. I mean, you probably don't have, uh, you know, sticks and, and uh, branches or whatever, but you have, uh, you know, blocks and jump ropes and balls and old stuff. You know, an old suitcase is a great thing. You know, traffic cones, whatever, uh, cardboard boxes. And then you just let the kids make things happen. And then they're, once again, they're interacting and they're, and they're doing something and it's in the real world. It's not totally in the real world because nobody trusts them to go to the park or the forest, but it's it's outside or inside if it's, you know, Canada, I guess. But actually, you Canadians can handle it, right? You're outside. Yeah, let's say we can handle it. Let's say it's cold. zero degrees and you're outside and you love it because you're Canadian. Oh, zero. And, that's like tropical. Well, zero, I'm saying zero with an F and you're thinking zero with a C. No, no, zero with no? an F. We got that. Oh, okay. It was minus 40 in the winter sometimes where I grew up. You know, I grew up in Chicago. It felt like it was minus 40 every oh, day yeah, of yeah. my childhood. You know yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyways, let's say the kids get to decide in or out or wherever there's space. But the whole idea is that that way they are off their devices. They are interacting. They have enough stuff to play with that that they can be creative. There's a ball for, I mean, like I just watched one of, we call these the Let Grow Play Clubs and I was just out visiting one. You know, the boys are pretty predictable. I have to say about 15 of them out of the 45 kids made a, a soccer game happen. And what was interesting to me is like, you know, you think that soccer, you need a soccer league. You need think you need the soccer dads, the soccer moms, the soccer coach, the soccer uniforms. You don't need anything except a bunch of boys and, and preferably a ball. But apparently Pele played with like, you know, socks wadded up around a, a grenade or something. I mean, it was just, you know, whatever poverty is, that's what he played with. And that's fun. And Peter, all right, I'll stop quoting him. I'll just pretend like these are my ideas. There was a survey done of kids online while they were playing some kind of video game. And the survey asked them, would you rather be playing this or outside with your friends? And 80 something percent of the people said, kids said, outside with friends. So the video games are a pale imitation of life, but I'm trying to figure out, Let Grow is trying to figure out how to give them maybe 90% of what you had as a kid, which is free time, mixed ages, loose parts, no devices, and a swath of an afternoon just to do with it what you will. Yeah, I think that idea of technology being, because of course technology, I mean, it's connected us. It, it is, it has many benefits. I think the challenge to a child's mind in my view, and I think to an adult's mind is you know, there are armies of uh, behavioral scientists working for these companies that like ultimately a child's brain doesn't stand a chance against <laughs> yeah, uh, what right. social media does. I know Jonathan uh, talks about it in, in his book about how technology impacts mental health, especially for young girls. You know, I even video games, you know, like I know some kids who became so addicted to video games, but that's because likely 
they didn't have the experience of unstructured play and these spaces to build. You know, it was like the video games became the escape and there's no, there's not as much social risk uh, with a headset on and no visual, uh, you know, interaction other than playing Call of Duty or, or Fortnite or whatever the games are. Yeah, you know, I think technology is not going anywhere, obviously. And it is the way that kids engage with one another with things like Snapchat or whatever they communicate with. Snapchat seemed kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just, I, I remember when Facebook came out in like 2007 or whatever. I just remember, I remember even working and only having email on a laptop. And then eventually I got a BlackBerry and I thought that was great and that we had BlackBerry Messenger but I didn't realize that I was just becoming more tethered and accessible. Like, I thought that was great that I had access to other people You quickly. thought it was freedom and it was a yoke. Right? Yeah, and then now in hindsight, I'm going, wow, that was a great bait, bait and switch they pulled on us. You know, like, here's convenience. You know, and it wasn't even a bait and switch. We just didn't realize what it was. It's, they didn't switch it. I mean, it's just giving us constant accessibility, Right. They didn't say, oh, this won't give you accessibility. They did, but we didn't realize what it would mean in terms of like when we would ever go to sleep or when we would ever not be at the office, quote unquote. I was changing my airline reservations today and I was talking to a guy who was in Tennessee, as it turned out. And he said, he's, I said, you know, what about your office? He said, we're never going back and I'm so bored. You know, people like being around people, even, you know, you don't like being around the really annoying one or the one who's always touching his toes or whatever, but <laughs> humans are a social species and this is, this is fun. I wish you were here now and we were having coffee and I'd feed you something and, you know, there's something, uh, it's, this is two dimensional. It's, it's not intellectually two dimensional, but it still is. And, and the other thing about play, like, so there's this wonderful person who's called a play worker in England, um, Penny Wilson. And when she has people uh, think back on their childhoods, trying to make them sort of understand that this is deeper than just, well, I could play on a screen or, you know, it's safer. I could play indoors or we could go to a gymboree and our children will be taught how to play by a tumbling expert and a fun expert. She says, like, think about the smells, the smells in the forest, you know, the, the pine or the dirt or after a rain, you know, the mud. I mean, there's just there's so many dimensions to real life and you don't want your kids growing up in a deprived state and online is deprived of a bunch of senses uh, smell and taste and touch are are missing you know you you have if you want to give them this enriched childhood imagine if they got to have all five senses engaged instead of two that's that's pretty great how do you find the response in terms of talking about let grow and allowing children this space of independence? Because I know in the podcast that I sent to my friends who have different perspectives on their own son's development, it was challenging for one the one who's a little more helicoptery, choppery, uh, who hovers a little more because his experience was negotiating safety, right? Like, yeah, but... Yeah, but I don't want this to he? happen. It was the he? It was the he who was Yeah, which is so rare, that's, that's right? That's rare. Yeah, it is rare. Yeah, it's even rare in my house. I'm I'm definitely scared, more scared than my husband. Yeah. Yeah, which normally you do see like the fathers are like, let them fall, let them do the thing. But actually I have a couple friends who are a little more choppery. We call them choppers, but it's kind of a joke. But at the same time, I, I witnessed their anxiety. You know, you were talking about how the world is safer today, but 
You said there were two reasons. One, media coverage about abductions. And I know Jonathan talks about how like a certain cases really amplified this in the 80s and 90s. What were some of the other reasons that we've become so almost obsessive, like in a way that a parent is no longer able to have a nervous system that's regulated because they're worried about being judged. They're worried about, you know, all the things. So what we're talking about at the beginning is like this lack of perspective that everything seems dangerous. And I think it came from five causes. And I mean, my book, I talk about five. So one is the media. Yes, the media discovered if it bleeds, it leads. I'm actually very excited. There's some article that I haven't read yet about this, about how sort of Philadelphia local news came up with eyewitness news and, and crime stories. And there was just this graph about like, here's sort of the crime rate. And here's the crime rate on TV. Like, here's the number of minutes of a, of a news show devoted to crime. And it's striking that it wasn't always thus, you know, that actually the amount of time devoted to discussing and tisk tisking and going to the scene of the crime really increased. And of course, with it, your perception of crime increases. And with that comes fear, right? So that's one. Um, the cases that he talks about are the cases that we all talk about, um, that John talks about, are um, Aton Pates, who was taken in 1979 in New York. And the interesting, A, tragic, B, interesting, is that when he disappeared, the working assumption, at least on the part of the public, for the first several weeks or month, was that he had been taken by a lovelorn woman who wanted to raise him as her own. So that's a different mindset than now. And the idea started mm -hmm. coming dribbling out. Well, maybe, you know, this sounds weird, but maybe it's a guy. Guy, why? Well, this is going to sound really icky, but whoa. And um, this book that's about a history of the history of kidnapping in America, child kidnapping, what a cheery book, talks about how when, when the idea of a predator became sort of popularized and, and recognized as a thing. It was like a, a match to a gas tank. It was like a, she, the, the author, Paula Fass, who's a historian at Berkeley, compares it to a um, roller coaster um, ride, which is like, it's terrifying, but it's so exciting and it's thrilling. And, you know, America has a hard time talking about sex. And so it allowed you to talk about sex, but in a disapproving way. And it's purient, but you feel virtuous because you're angry. And it's, it is all these things mixed together on top of just rage and sorrow. And so it's a very emotionally filling, in, in a sickening way, story. And then when Adam Walsh was taken a couple of years later, and his dad was John Walsh, there was a miniseries mini done on it on television, and it broke all ratings records. And the, the television executives are not there to make the world a better place. They are there to make money. Okay, that's their job, right? And they say, okay, get me more of these. And it happened to be at the same time that that cable television was rolling out over America in the early 80s. And so you have 24 hours to fill. Got, what are you going to do for a news cycle? How much budget budgeting could people watch? <laughs> you know, like, you know, how many Senate hearings? Let's show this horrible story over and over and over again. And so it became sort of the upsetting, gripping wallpaper of our lives. And then there were the pictures on the milk cartons that said, have you seen me? Oh yeah. Remember those? those? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and the, the terrible thing about them is first of all, that these kids were missing, but secondly, that most were runaways or taken in a custodial dispute between, um, you know, divorced parents, but it seemed like they had all been snatched off their bicycles. So it gave this misimpression every morning at breakfast, you were eating breakfast with you know, a child who had been disappeared, murdered in the, the most 
horrifying, blood chilling way as possible. So our perspective started getting off in the 80s. And actually, I think in the 80s, maybe it was the 90s, that's when also mass incarceration started. We used to have our country used to be sort of in tandem with all the other countries in terms of proportion of the population that's in prison. And now it's we have now we have five percent of the prison, five percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of the prisoners. So something got really out of whack. Yeah. The war on drugs was right around then, I think. Yeah, exactly. Nancy. 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 Really and I have to it. say, Bill, Bill Clinton, too. And Joe Biden, whatever. Thank God we're not talking politics because everybody has blood on their hands when it comes to, you know, the war on drugs and just an excessive uh, response to something that's personal and often tragic. But the response, you know, to treat everything like a crime when things are problems is pretty simplistic and cruel. Anyway, I don't actually know a lot about that. (laughs) Well, I think it's very correlated to how we handle the lack of capacity for disagreement or things that someone fucks up and they we try to cancel them. It's very similar to how we handle, you know, we don't, it's not restorative in our communities generally are not. Like, how did we learn as humans? We learn by making mistakes, but we we actually live in a space where it's not really safe to make mistakes generally in our shame, which everyone has skeletons in their closet and, you know, are things they're ashamed of. Or bad things that they, yeah, and you can do things and that's not who you are. You're not defined, like the, the, the sentence I like is, you're not the worst thing you've ever done. You know, it's terrible that you did that bad thing, but you're also a person who has a lot of other things going for you and a lot of things often against you. And we like being vindictive. Vengeance is a, it's one of these other sort of bracing feelings. It is. And it's like the theme of movies and it's, you know. Yeah, it's celebrated. Yeah. What do you think about the opposite? Like I have a friend whose friend was telling me about how they can track their son with everything he does. Like he's on some sort of like some, I forget what it's called. It's like 360. Yes, that's what it was. And I was like, wait, what? And then she's like, it's so, you know, I know where he is all the time. I'm like, that sounds fucking awful to be him. That sounds, so have you had much experience in studying the impact of that or just experience, you know, what you've, what you've heard? It's sort of the field that interests me most. And yet I haven't really delved that deeply. What I did do was interview six kids who are being tracked. Um, They were all in high school. First of all, I love them. They all seemed like really nice kids. They happened to be from a suburban high school, not too far from here. The things that they were saying about being tracked were, to me, fascinating and and unexplored. (laughs) The most poignant was that um, one kid said, I I sort of, (laughs) I mean, there were so many poignant things. One kid said, I just wish I'd get pulled over for speeding once and get a ticket and it would be my problem (laughs) because I had done something wrong and I was dealing with the consequences. And that's a weird thing. Like, oh, I wish I had a ticket. But what he meant was that his parents are so on top of whatever he's doing that like, honey, you're going five miles over the speed limit. Wait, they could see how fast he's going, how fast he's driving. Oh, there's all sorts of, I mean, there's, you would not believe what you could track in your kids. You can, you know, first of all, you're there, you'll see when your kid goes to school that there's all these portals where you can see their grades on the Spanish quiz before they come through the door. It's like, why didn't you study for your Spanish quiz? What are you talking about? You got a D. It's like, how do you know? It's like, here it is. It's, it's, so what I feel like it's just, is there's so much evisceration of your own life. And when I talk about tracking, I like to ask people, who did we used to track before it was easy, before it was with the iPhone? Do you know who we used to track? No. Felons. To track oh, yeah, felons. Yeah, like the ankle bracelets. And on stuff. work release. 
Right. And that's not because we trusted them. It's not because we were worried that they would, you know, get lost on their way home from soccer. Right. <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, it's because we did not trust them. And we, you know, the, the prison warden was in charge of their lives, even though that they were out in the outside world. And so it wasn't freedom. It was more free than being in the prison, but it wasn't freedom. And now we say, oh, I'm just tracking in because I want to be safe or I'm doing it for my sake. It's like, well, you know, your your sake as a parent, and this is the horrible part about it, is is not to feel secure and happy and unanxious every moment. <laughs> now I hate to tell you you're about to you're about to enter that world. But if you make your anti-anxiety the thing that the kid's life is about, the kid is about the kid's life is about their life and about you supporting them and loving them and watching them grow. Uh, but it's not about you having them on a leash so you, they never get lost. And it's not about you having them tracked so that you know exactly where they are at any moment. Some of the kids were talking about how the thing that made them sad was that, like, I'm a good kid. You know, I say I'm not going to go to that party. I won't go to that party because I'm as good as my word. But there's no way to prove that I didn't go to that party because I'm honest. Because uh, it could be that you think I didn't go to that party because you could have tracked me if I did go and you would know. And so, the relationship with the parent is really an important one. And one of the things you want is to earn their respect and their trust. And I often do this little ex experiment when I, I'm talking to a crowd where I have them close their eyes and think of somebody who made them feel terrible about themselves at some point in your life. You know, it could be a parent, a bad boyfriend, bad boss. And you see people going like, <laughs> and then they and you open your eyes. Who was it? Oh, it was this horrible coach or it was this mean boss or this bad boyfriend. I mean, it was bad boyfriend. Um, and then I have them close their eyes. And this is an experiment I, and a thing I took from somebody else, but I love it. And then they close their eyes and they think of like, who made them feel confident or like they could do something or that they were beautiful or, you know, capable of great things or worthy. And when they open their eyes, when I opened my eyes, um, I was crying because I was thinking of my seventh grade teacher, my social studies teacher who thought that I was, you know, funny and clever and, you know, uh, I was going to do great things. I was going to have a boyfriend, everything good. Um, it was like this magic ball, but she knew who I actually was. And when you're tracking your kids all the time, it's sort of the opposite of being the person who believes in your kids. And parents explain it to their kids saying, it's not that I don't believe in you. It's the other people in the world. It's like, well, where did you think the kid was going to be? The kid is going to be in the world. <laughs> there's not an, you know, there's not a world B where they could be. And also they say that um, it's just for my own reassurance, which is also sort of not fair. And the crazy thing is it doesn't actually provide a parent with more peace of mind. It's the opposite. You know, the, the, the battery dies and it's like, are they still on the bus? You know, are they at the bus depot? I haven't seen them since. Or they leave it in the locker. Or, you know, I was trying to get a hold of you. Where were you? Where were you? And it's like, relax, mom, I was in the bathroom. And so it's the idea that you, you must have omniscience, you deserve it. And with that, you know, with the worries of not being in touch with them also comes this idea that if anything bad happens, I was just trying to write about this today. Obviously, if anything terrible happens to your kid or even rough, uh, you do feel terrible. You feel terrible for them. You feel bad that it happened. You wish you could have prevented it. But now there's sort of proof that like, if why weren't you paying more attention? Why weren't you watching him every single second? Why didn't you get the thing that tracks their breathing? Why didn't you get the thing that tracks their temperature? Why didn't you get the thing that tracks every grade and whether they got to school or not? And so there's the burden almost every single second that if you're not paying attention, um, something terrible is going to be happening to your kid. And 
If it does, it's all your fault because you had omniscience like God. You could have done some, yeah. And, and yet the, the, the thing that's the tension that's driving the parents crazy is you have omniscience, but you don't have omnipotence. So you can know where they're doing and everything, but you still can't, you know, stop them from doing something dumb or fate. You can't stop fate. But we think that we're that powerful that we can. And that's driving parents crazy. It's so I was going to get to this as our one of one of our reasons that we're so worried and quote unquote helicoptering is first of all the technology allows it, and then in place of us growing more confident and letting our kids go, and you used to have to let them go around the corner, and then you couldn't see them, so you had to trust that they weren't running into the street, um, that they weren't playing hooky. You had to grow in trust, but if you don't have to grow, you don't. And you're left just terrified like you were when they were three years old, except they're going around the corner. And then the child is left feeling like a baby who you don't believe in. People talk about technology like, isn't it horrible about the social media? And yes, we can go on and on about that. But there's something very strange about the parent-child relationship that never requires actual trust now that everything can be verified. Yeah, it's almost like neither the child nor the adult gets to go through the initiatory process that being a parent and a child who becomes an adolescent and then becomes an adult, it's like they're left suspended in uh, being infantilized till they finally get out of the house. And I'm sorry, but if my parent was supervising, my mom was a bit of choppery, but like I resented it and, and we didn't have technology. I couldn't imagine, but you know, I, so much of it, as you were saying was for her emotion, not mine, right? Like, because we live in a world that we are, afraid of negative feelings or painful negative things Negative feelings happening. are rotten. I agree. <laughs> you know? But essential, but essential, you yeah, know, like I think of the, the most trans- bargain. Yeah. Right. And, and we can't pharmaceutical them away. We can't like, it's just, it's all part of the same cultural fear. And, you know, I think like you said, we don't have to grow. And so we try to over obsess and control the things in our children's lives or our lives so that we don't have to live in any state of anxiety, but yet we are in a suspended state of anxiety. Right. So that brings me to, I'll just quickly say the three other reasons that I think we're so afraid. And then I want to get to how to get over that horrible anxiety, at least a little. And I always say I'm I'm part helicopter on my mom's side. So it's not like I don't empathize with helicopter parents. And I don't think it's our fault that we're helicoptering because the social norm is to be with your kid every second. And when you're with them, you see what they're doing wrong, right? And your natural instinct is to intervene, which is why you have to be separate from them so that they have some chance to screw up and to waste their time and to get to this next level where we are. But when our, you know the culture says you have to drop them off at school and you have to wait at the bus stop with them and you have to be there at soccer practice and you're always expected to be there, of course, you will intervene. So it's not that we're the most interventionist, horrible harpies. It's that we're there. So you need some separation, literally separation. So um, the other the other three reasons that I think we're so much more afraid for our kids is that we have an expert culture. Everybody's always telling us we're doing it wrong. There's a million books. Um, you have a marketplace that knows that we have smaller families, two incomes. You know, when you had five kids and dad working, mom couldn't you know, spend all the time and money on them. Nobody could. And then, and now you have two kids and two incomes. The marketplace comes in and says, aren't you worried about whatever? And they sell you something to, to make you a little less scared. And the other reason is a litigious society starts that, that sort of um, outlook of like, well, you could have prevented. I just, every year I look at the list of the most dangerous toys 
and they can't find dangerous toys because there's the toys have to get through such a phalanx of um, regulations that by the time they get to the market, they're not dangerous. So they keep, my favorite one was there was a Batman toy. It was like a large Batman action figure with the ears. And it says the ears are sharp protrusions and could puncture the skin or, or kidney, you know, if a child fell on them. And they're like, yeah, from the Empire State Building, you know, and, and somebody was holding the, you know, the guy straight up and, and maybe it was nailed to the ground. It's just they we have to fantasize dangers in some sense. But that's what lawyers do. And lawyers pretend that there's no such thing as an accident. And if something happens once in a blue moon, that's something that everybody should have predicted. And in New Jersey, my favorite story recently is that, um, not, not my favorite story is not that a child fell off the slide and broke her arm. That's not my favorite part of the story. My favorite part is that the parents sued and the lawyer argued that the, the slide was at a 35 degree angle instead of a 30 degree angle. And the school should have known that that was dangerous and the parents got over a hundred thousand dollars. So what? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's horrible stories make for, you know, dramatic. They shouldn't even be, they should get sued for the ridiculousness of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if everybody, I mean, like if it was opening day of that slide and everybody fell off, right, that's a bad slide. Okay. Get rid of that slide. You know, maybe you shouldn't have a slide like that. You know, that's, that's a, you know, that's a 120 degree slide. So that's it. The fact that it had been there for years and years and most kids did it fine. I think the proof is in the pudding, but somehow, you know, the anomaly is what becomes the lawsuit. And so you start thinking about like, you have to almost think crazily because like, well, what could some jury be convinced of thinking that this was wrong? So it, it just seeps in. So the anxiety that has been ratcheted up by all the things that we've been talking about cannot be dispelled by the same thing that created it, which is your mind. The only thing that changes you is not my statistics on, you know, how safe it is now compared to any other. It's not graphs. It's not crime rates. It's not podcasts, alas. Uh, The only thing that I've seen that changes parents is them having the actual real life experience of letting their kids go and do something and having the kid come back and the kid being so happy or the kid being a little scared, but they did it anyway, maybe a little weepy, maybe a boo-boo. And the parent is just as just as we have all these desires to, you know, to procreate and to play, there's this other thing that's that's organic in humanity, which is a desire to see your kid survive, live. And the only way you know that they're going to be able to do that is if they can do something without you, because you want them to survive when you're not there right? I mean, that's why you're having a kid, right? And so the Let Grow Project, which is our other free thing that we recommend, and there's a home version, which you could just you could download it all. But the, the one we like is in schools, because then a bunch of kids are changing at the same time. And it's easier to change social norms when there's a social norm changing than when there's one family changing. So the, the Let Grow Project is the teacher gives the kids a homework assignment. I don't know why I'm picking up my greeting card, but it says, um, go home and do something new on your own without your parents. And then we have a list. I'm constantly changing the list because some of the things are just too easy. But it, it's everything from like if you're, you know, a four-year-old, make a sandwich, you know, or and we don't give ages because some kids will have done something and not done others, you know, ride your bike. Um, visit grandma, climb a tree, run an errand, play a game outside with your friends, go to the park, whatever it is. And if you're in a really dangerous neighborhood, walk down the hall and babysit for the neighbors. I mean, it's just, there's always something you can do. Make dinner for the family. That is a step up 
That's a little hard. That's a little challenging. And when you do it, everyone is transformed. And I, I did a whole television series about this. I did a, um, a reality show back like 10 years ago where I would sit with like the most anxious parents in the world, like who wouldn't let their kids use a knife or wouldn't let their kids. One kid, the mom was still feeding the 10 year old in his mouth and wouldn't let him ride a bike and all what? these things. And so challenge one was I taught him how to use a knife, which took like two seconds. And then the next challenge was I gave him a bike and his mom had always been worried that he would fall, which he did plenty of times and that he'd be frustrated, which he was because those are things that happen when you're learning to ride a bike. But once again, it's that interstitial stuff that's important because then you realize it's not so bad to fall. You know, of course you're frustrated on your way to a difficult goal. And then by the end of a couple hours, he, you know, he wasn't, uh, you know, uh, what's he, Lance Armstrong, uh, for better or for worse, um, probably better. Um, but he was <laughs> able to ride a bike. And when the mom came home and her mother was there, grandma, who was Russian, she's like, guess what, mom? Sammy can ride a bike. And the grandma was like, oh, does Sammy ride a bike? Yes, Sammy can ride a bike. And they were so like, Sammy can ride a bike. And I'm like, weren't you guys the ones who didn't want to ride a bike? <laughs> Wasn't it you who said you can't ride a bike? But that's why the Lecro project is so crucial and easy and literally transformative. I mean, so transformative. We have a psychology professor who is studying whether it should be used as therapy for anxious kids. And I'll give you a story about it. Uh, so so the, 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 the job is you have to go do something new on your own without your parents. So the psychology professor who's working with a PhD candidate advertised, you know, well, I'll give free therapy to a family with a kid with anxiety. And the first family they got, two parents, a 10-year-old boy, they were so scared of him doing anything. And he was so scared of doing anything, but he was a train kid. <laughs> so he did want to take the train. But first he had to walk to school by himself. That was his first challenge. And so the day he decided to walk home from school by himself, the mother was such a nervous wreck. She took the day off work. Okay. 10-year-old wow. boy, suburbs, I can't stand it. I'm too nervous. Like, what's she going to do being home? But she had to devote herself to that worry. And sure enough, he walked home. No big deal. Anyways, there he well, is. Yeah. Okay. The mother felt good. The next day he walked home, she could go to work, right? That weekend was the train weekend. And he took the Long Island Railroad five stops, which is probably 10 miles. And he loved that. And he was very proud. And then that was towards the end of this particular, this last summer. And so September came and school starts in the sixth grade, middle school. And the first day of school is when you get your lockers and you get your, um, you know, where your homeroom is going to be and you get the combination to your locker and all this stuff. And kids so were fun. told. I remember that. Yeah. Well, kids were told. Now they're told, you know, if you want, bring your parents. You know, it's a big day. Bring your parents if you want to. And he was one of the only kids who didn't. Wow. Yeah. So to me, I mean, you're talking about a kid who, oh, I forgot to tell you the most important part, which is that at the beginning when they came in with him, he was afraid to go upstairs or downstairs in their house without a parent. So that was a, you know, it was painful. And you could tell the parents, you know, oh, you have to, you know, think about how great it will be if he's independent. Think how wonderful it'll be if he walks by himself. That doesn't work because you go to what if he hurts himself? What if somebody kidnaps him? So you have to push them into actually letting go. So that's why I said let grow is about behavior change, not just thought change, because the thoughts don't change. If you've ever had this on, I have had too. It's like your thoughts just repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And so action breaks the cycle. And let grow is dedicated to making that action easy, right? And it's easy if 
a teacher says your kid has to do something. I don't care what, but you guys decide what it will be, but they have to do something on their own. And then all the other kids are doing things on their own. And then all the other parents are talking to each other and maybe the kids do things together. That's fine. But it just renormalizes the idea of your childhood, which is that, yeah, the kids can go together and play for an afternoon in the woods. And that's good, not crazy. And you're going to love seeing them come home hungry and little pieces of, you know, twigs in their hair (laughs) and um, a, a sword made out of a branch and and happy and ready for bed. I mean, just that's life. And that's what we've taken out of kids life. And the only way I've seen to change childhood back to these good parts of childhood that you and I are remembering are to push the behavior change. And that's what Let Grow is trying to do. Anybody who's still listening, (laughs) you should consider bringing the Let Grow project to a teacher or a principal, or you can, you know, we have this, the Let Grow Independence Kit, which is for individuals that just has basically everything except instead of saying school, it says you and trying it because it's so fast and so easy. And it just requires buying. This is why I keep talking on podcasts and living my life is because I've seen how quickly it works and how thoroughly and how dramatically and how, how the sun comes through the clouds. And it's not hard. It's just doing this once saying, okay, I trust you. I trust the world. I'm going to trust luck. I'm going to trust my own memories that this was a good thing. And I'm going to let you go. And that changes that changes the parent and the kid. Yeah, and it changes the world. You know, it makes them have more capacity for discomfort, being in the space between what was, what becomes. I think, too, of how much the anxieties of the parent become the anxieties of the child or the, like, I don't trust you, and then the child's internal belief system is I don't trust myself. And what uh, Let Grow does is actually heal that for the parent and the child. I mean, it's, so powerful. And it, it, to me, the responsibility of that as a parent, the responsibility of the recognition of the belief that we're passing on to the child, is it a belief in themselves or is it actually a trepidation and a fear of the world? And I, I think that's the responsibility we have to heal that, even though it makes us uncomfortable. Right. And so that's why I think it's a good, a good thing is to feel a little anger. Like, how come this society that I'm growing up has made me so anxious that everything I love doing as a kid, I'm not letting my own kid do, right? Yeah. That's just like Wild. screw that culture, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna show it who's boss, right? I'm sick of being terrified by a culture of fear, and I'm gonna get a bunch of parents together so it's not just me. Have a party, and you stay inside, and the kids play outside. It will be the best party for both of you <laughs> ever, and so just re-normalize what you loved as a kid, which is some time with your cousins, with your friends, without your parents, without a coach, without a teacher, without a minder. And if I didn't think this was possible and easy and free, then I wouldn't bother. But it is all of those things. And all it takes is saying, okay, I'm going to try it. And I'm going to try to do it with a group of people because change social norms is social. So if you can change a bunch of people at once, it's easier. Well, beautiful. Lenora, thank you so much. I mean, this has been very entertaining too. And that's what I love about your book too, is it's funny. It should yeah. I feel like I feel like my my sense of humor and my memory are leaving at the same time, leaving me a shell of myself. But <laughs> oh, that's for another conversation. <laughs> what are you anxious about? Me. <laughs> your levity though, your levity really makes the subject and and the willingness. So thank you. 
Well, it's it's really just anger. <laughs> it's anger. It's anger, it's really but it is anger. also well. Thank you though for the work that you do and and for the heart that you put into everything because you can sense it in your voice and in your work and in your writing. For people listening, where can they find all these wonderful things that you're speaking of? And your book, I know, is available anywhere that books can can be bought. Anywhere books are sold, which is Amazon and Amazon. Um, maybe Target. It's you know, so the book is Free Range Kids. And that's available wherever. I actually got royalties recently. I couldn't believe it. That's like 15 years later, I finally got my first royalty check. So so Sweet. somebody's buying it. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, and then Let Grow is the website. And that's L-E-T-G-R-O-W.org. Um, we also have this cool thing that actually I'm about to go to now. On Facebook, we have a community called, why do they all have different names? Um, Raising Independent Kids. That's a nice group because it's really like, I, you know, I want to get my seven-year-old out to play, but he doesn't want to go. What should I do? Or, you know, my kid is four. Is that too young for them to play in the yard? So it's it's a community that is a little less snippy and snipey um, than a lot of other parenting forums. And then also we're, we're changing the laws. I forgot to mention that. We're, we're changing neglect laws. And we've done it in four states already, Oklahoma, Texas, Colorado, and Utah. The neglect laws usually say neglect is when you don't supervise your kid. And it's like, well, how much are you supposed to supervise them? Who decides what that is? So we've narrowed that law to say neglect is when you put your kid in obvious, serious, and likely danger. So that if you do want your kids to play outside or walk to the park, I mean, mostly it's fine everywhere, but like, let's just reassure parents that that's not going to be considered neglect. So if you want to join us in those, um, we're working in a bunch of states this year. And if you have any stories to tell us, you should tell us. Everything's at letgrow.org. So go over there and you'll find my blog. There's a card you can print out for your kid that says, I'm not lost or neglected. I'm a let grow kid. You know, I can talk to strangers. I'm talking to you. <laughs> so just if you don't believe me, call my mom and then you put in a phone number. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love. 